So just acknowledging again that in this uh, relatively short space of time we're covering a lot of ground, but I wanted to give a sense of all four establishments of mindfulness from the Satipatthana Sutta, partly because I said, as I said yesterday and in the evening talk on Thursday, often we keep getting the same instructions on mindfulness of breathing and we don't progress to the other three establishments, mindfulness of feeling tone, mindfulness of mind and mindfulness of dhammas. So I wanted to at least give an overview of how all these four work together so that we can bring more awareness to the mind. And the purpose of all this practice we're doing is to help us see clearly which qualities and states of mind are helpful and to be strengthened and which ones are unhelpful and need to be released. All of this in the service of deepening wisdom and compassion so that we can live with more ease and freedom. So that's what we're doing in less than a second. One second description of what's actually a lifetime of practice. So I wanted to move now into exploring mindfulness of the mind, the third establishment. We were started to do that in the guided meditation earlier. And in some ways, just to recap, the first foundation or establishment mindfulness of the body is, for most people, slightly easier because it's tangible, it's concrete, sensations are more immediate and they move more slowly. And then mindfulness of feeling tone is not fully physical and it's not fully mental. It's a kind of a bridge between body and mind. Mindfulness of mind includes thoughts, emotions, moods, mind states, any activity that's not purely physical. And as we probably discovered earlier, it happens really fast. It can be quite intense and often we really identify with it. With our thoughts, we make the world. That quote I gave from the Dhammapada the other day. So just to say a little bit about these different aspects of the mind, I tend to talk about the mind in terms of thoughts, emotions, moods, and mind states. And I break it down into those four main categories just to help us get a bit more handle on it. So thoughts, just what we mean in English, any kind of mental thought process. Sometimes we experience it as words in the mind or inner dialogue, sort of conversations with other people or ourselves. Sometimes it's more visual images, seeing things, imagining things, visualizing things. Sometimes it can be sounds, how often we get caught, especially on retreat, by some tune or song or theme tune from an ancient TV program. You know, so my mental activity can include sounds as well. Emotions are interesting because they, they again are a hybrid of body and mind. So most emotions have some kind of impact on the body, a compound of sense, physical sensations and thoughts in the mind. 
So, for example, anxiety. Most of us who experience anxiety, if we pay attention, there might be a kind of a clamminess in the hands or a tightening of the chest or a hollow feeling in the belly. And then there might be racing thoughts, sudden torrent of thoughts coming in. So all of us have slightly different uh, symptoms. But a lot of what we're doing here is training in body literacy and emotional literacy. Because sadly in our society we tend to privilege the intellect and most of us have no clue. Well, not most of us, many of us have no clue what's happening below the level of the cognitive mind. So this is a skill that we can train in, beginning to identify how different emotions show up for us in terms of the body and the thought patterns associated with it. So emotions are often somewhat intense. They tend not to last particularly long unless we feed them by identifying with them. But for the most part, they tend to come and go. As opposed to moods, which are more those sort of background, low-level, lingering sense of sadness or grief or whatever it might be. And if we look at a mood, often it's a compound of different emotions that are just sort of in the background but coloring our experience in various ways. So, for example, if I say, oh, I woke up in a bad mood, if I pay attention to what do I mean by a bad mood, it might be a feeling, physical feeling of heaviness and tiredness. There might be aspects of sadness or loneliness or self-judgment or a little bit of depression or, you know, different things coming together, glomming together and creating this compound that I refer to as a bad mood. And so moods often last a little longer than emotions and sometimes they're harder to, to detect because they're sort of just back there coloring the way we view the world. And then mind states is a little bit more of a technical term, but it refers to different qualities of mind that we can recognize, but they may not have a particular emotional tone to them. So, for example, right now you can know whether you're alert or sort of foggy and dull. You can know whether mindfulness is present or not. You can know the energetic state of the mind, you can know if there's clarity or curiosity or interest or spacing out. Those are all what I call mental states that are discernible, but they're not necessarily emotions. Does that make sense for people? Is that fairly clear? Great. And in the third establishment of mindfulness, uh, The Buddha selected a kind of a representative set of mind states for us to pay attention to. And I'd like to read you the actual part of the actual text because I think the language is significant. He says, One knows a lustful mind to be lustful and a mind without lust to be without lust. Lust here includes any form of greed, really, not just... We usually think of lust as sexual lust, but it's any kind of wanting in the mind. One knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. 
one knows a deluded mind to be deluded and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind to be contracted and a distracted mind to be distracted. And then it goes on to include a, a bunch of other more skillful mental states. But there's a couple of aspects of that quote I want to highlight. The first is the one knows whether a, a particular quality is present or not. And again, because of our negativity bias, we tend to be much more aware of when there's anger or greed than when there isn't. So that's partly why yesterday I invited you to notice is how, what's the level of greed right now? What's the level of ill will or aversion right now? How clear or present or non-deluded are you right now? So it can be very useful to start training and noticing those times when we're somewhat free of afflictive states. Because most of us need to learn how to abide there. We tend to just go to the next problem and the next problem and the next problem. Someone told me recently that their teacher said, be aware of the gaps between the problems. <laughs> how often do we do that? Right? Oh, nothing's going on. I better start wrestling with this next issue. So be aware of the gaps between the problems. This is directly a paraphrase of the sutta. Notice when these afflictive states are absent as well as when they're present. The other piece of the language that's interesting there, it says, one knows a mind. doesn't say, notice when you're angry. Notice when you're not angry. There's no you there. There's no identification with these states. So we're not taking ownership of these qualities. We're simply knowing when they're present, knowing when they're absent. And again, this is a training that I'd like us to experiment with now because most of us are so used to paying attention to the content of the thoughts that we don't notice metaphorically the space that they're arising in. So just like here in this room, we tend to pay attention to the chairs, the people, the furniture, the equipment, the stuff in the room, and we don't notice the space that's making it all possible. So in this next uh, guided meditation, we're going to be trying to tune into the mental qualities rather than the thoughts or the content of the mind. So noticing the background quality that's going on. And because this is fairly subtle, I'm going to invite us to do it in pairs again. But again, we won't be disclosing anything personal. What I'd like us to do is sit together in silence and then take it in turns. When some mental quality becomes apparent, to name that with just one word. So the first person might, we might be sitting together in silence and the first person takes their time, tunes in, and then they notice interest. They name interest. We sit together in silence until the second person 
registers some kind of mental quality. They might notice confusion. So they simply name with one word confusion rather than saying, I don't get these instructions. I never understand things. I'm just the kind of person who just never gets it. Let that go. Let go of the identification. Simply name confusion. And settle back again. First person sitting in silence. So there might be quite a lot of silence that allows these different mental states to be known. Is that clear enough for everyone? You might check right now, given that we're being um, invited into pairs, if there are any formations that are being activated. I hate working in pairs, or why can't we do this by ourselves? You can. But before I offer that as an option, just to notice any responses to this invitation to work with a partner and see, are those formations helpful? Is it worth uh, experimenting or not? So it's really your choice, having done that exploration. If you want to work with a partner, great. If you want to work alone, you might do it as a written exercise. So you can take a pen and paper and just sit somewhere quietly. If you'd like to work with a partner, just find someone nearby. And then, as we did yesterday, set yourselves up around the room and uh, make yourselves comfortable. Okay.